That'd be Romans 3 for prayer. Heavenly Father, your name is above all names, and we just praise you for this beautiful, glorious day of sunshine and springtime and uh, kind of a new rebirth, and uh, Easter's coming here in a few weeks, and we're just grateful for that. Lord, we just ask that you would bless your word as it is spoken by me, and that you would bless Mike as he brings the message to us. We ask most of all, Lord, that we would not see Mike or me, but that we would see Jesus. We ask this in his holy name. Amen. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have been worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In all the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since though the law comes through the law, comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. We don't have power. We do have power. Raise your hands if you can hear me. All right. All right. It's kind of rowdy in here today. People moving around, all kinds of things. So I normally do the announcements, and so then I get to add whatever I want to during those announcements. But today I'm not doing announcements, so I want to add one uh, right now. And it's a praise. Um, Hannah Hensley uh, was accepted to the Boston Conservatory. And is going to be heading off, uh, going to be heading off over there uh, in the fall. So we need to, pr- <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the going to the Hensleys today is what she said. If you, if you uh, didn't hear that, so we're rejoicing and we're praying for the Lord to provide for uh, for that way. Very exciting. Congratulations. Uh, Richard Dawkins is a uh, scholar, a scientist, uh, a lecturer, and he is a a bold scientist and atheist. And he believes that these two things go together, science and atheism. A picture of the spirit 
of Richard Dawkins with his t-shirt here, Religion, Together We Can Find the Cure. He likens religion in general and Christianity in particular as something like cancer, something like He is uh, an atheist of a different kind of stripe because atheists throughout the centuries have often recognized that uh, religious people do sociological good, that they bring ethics, they bring some good things to the world. And so they're deceived and they have their crutch, but we're thankful that they bring some moral things to the world. Dawkins will have that. Uh, He is boldly against the God of the Bible. In his uh, New York Times uh, bestseller, uh, he writes this, the, The God Delusion. He writes, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilent, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's a lot. I need help already? Thank you. I, I switched it back. We're on, right? Okay, back to our, I'm not sure what to call him, but back to him. Um, <clears throat> he is a man who has read the Old Testament. And he has read uh, the plagues and has read the Exodus. And he has seen things like the plagues in the Exodus. And he would view that as, uh, as torture. And not just the plagues, but other passages in the Old Testament that Dawkins has read later in Exodus, uh, Exodus 23, 23, for my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. And so Dawkins labels the God of the Bible as an ethnic cleanser and as a bully as someone who sends plagues upon people. And he would say this is a bad character uh, of fiction. Dawkins, of course, is wrong. And one of the things that I've learned is that there are a lot of people smarter than me who are wrong. And we have to learn that as we read things of other people. Uh, I, I am not at an intellectual level uh, of, of a guy like Richard Dawkins. I'm just not. He's a smart guy. I had to get out my dictionary to look up those words in that, in that sentence, some of them. Uh, philicidal or whatever it was. 
Uh, that, that, that's a term for someone who enjoys killing his own children. Uh, Richard Dawkins, however, has read the Old Testament and has come to these conclusions. And so what I want to do today, I want to do two things today really in this sermon. One of them, we're going to look at the third and fourth plagues uh, in detail as we continue our journey through uh, the gospel according to Exodus. And the second thing I want to do is as I answer the question, why does God send these ten plagues on Egypt from the perspective of someone like Dawkins uh, seemingly to torture uh, the Egyptians? Why does God do this? And at the end of today, my prayer is that we would see more clearly and more deeply that our God is good and that he is loving and that he's holy and that our confidence in him would be even greater today uh, than, than before. So let's pray one more time before we get into God's word for him to speak to us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that the Holy Spirit helps us to believe and to know that you are a good and gracious and loving God. I ask today as we look through this uh, passage, these, uh, these third and fourth plagues, that you would speak to each one of us here as your Holy Spirit would intend. I echo uh, Jerry's prayer that he, that I, that whoever's up here, that we would be as invisible as we can and that the Holy Spirit would be at work through the power of the Word of God to change us and to make us people that are full of joy, full of hope, and full of peace because you are a good and great God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'd open your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you. I encourage you to grab one of those and uh, turn there to Exodus chapter 8. Now, if you're visiting today or haven't been here, we're in a series of Exodus. And last week, we looked at the first two plagues, which began in chapter 7 and verse 14. The first plague was the plague of blood uh, in 7.14. And then look at chapter 7 and verse 22. It says there, after this plague of blood, in verse 22 of chapter 7, the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And then I'm going to flip over the page to, uh, to plague number 2, the plague of frogs in chapter 8 and verse 1. And in verse 7 of chapter 8, we see the same thing happened in the second plague, that the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. So these first two plagues the magicians were able to duplicate through, demo- through demonic supernatural power the plagues that God had brought down upon Egypt. So today we come to plague number three and verse 16 of chapter 8. Let's, uh, let's begin uh, looking at uh, verses 16 through 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff, and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came upon men and animals. 
All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. And the gnats were on men and animals. The magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. So plague number three is gnats. Unless you have the uh, King James Version or a New King James Version. Anybody here uh, King James people or New King James people? A few of you. So you have what there? Lice. So, you know, I'm not sure that that's going to be at the top of my list when we get to heaven, whether this third plague is gnats or lice. Uh, but there's been some debate. Uh, most uh, most uh, conclude that what we're dealing here with this third plague is gnats. So either gnats or lice he has sent. And one of the things that stands out right away here about this third plague is that the magicians tried to produce these gnats by their secret arts, and they could not do it. They could not duplicate what God had done. So one uh, commentator uh, writes this, uh, answering the question, why is God doing this, specifically this plague? Uh, By turning the dust into bugs, God was claiming authority over the very soil of Egypt and thus over the God of the ground, the earth god Geb, one of the many gods that the Egyptians worshipped. God's strategy for gaining glory over the gods of Egypt was to defeat them one at a time by demonstrating his control over the creatures that the Egyptians worshipped. So we see God, Pastor Adam mentioned this last week, we see God going going over all of these important gods and demonstrating his sovereignty and power over these false gods of Egypt. He is showing himself to be the ruler and the authority over every realm of of every power of everything uh, that there is. And he is showing himself also to be more powerful than the demonic realm. And he does this through demonstrating that their uh, magicians were were unable to duplicate uh, this plague. Matthew Henry uh, writes this. He says the devil's agents, uh, referring to Pharaoh's magicians, the devil's agents, when God permitted them, could do great things. But But when he laid an embargo upon them, though but with his finger, they could do nothing. They couldn't do a thing. And so there is purpose and there is reason for these plagues. It is not because God is a bully. We're going to unfold this over this, these next few minutes. It is not because God is a, is a selfish uh, ethnic cleanser. Uh, he is uh, omnipotent. And here he is showing his power over all the realms. And so he has taken the dust uh, indicating the numerousness of these of these gnats and has brought them upon uh, the Egyptians. And so uh, answer uh, number one to why he has sent, uh, answer number one to why God has sent the plagues upon the Egyptians is to show them, to show the Egyptians and to show all of humanity his awesome and undeniable power over false gods, over demons, over Satan, over all of creation, over everything that you and I will encounter in our lives. God has dominion and authority 
an undeniable power over it. And if we are on God's side, this is good news. This means he is sufficient for whatever you are dealing with in life. He has authority over temptations and the demonic realm and, and, and suffering and cancer and, and no matter what it is. So we're seeing a picture here of God's great power. And I have seen pictures of great, God's great power uh, over many years of, of uh, ministry. And I have seen a lot of bad stuff happen. And I've seen lots of things um, that have happened in the demonic realm and people who are so down and depressed and discouraged. Pastor Adam has had the same experiences. And I've noticed something over the years uh, when there's a crisis, whether it's uh, cancer or whether it's something more uh, evil and and, and demonic and um, uh, whether it's uh, rape uh, or incest or prostitution or adultery, all these kinds of things have, have made their way to, uh, to living rooms and to pastor's offices and to varieties of places. And I've noticed a couple things as, as you begin a, a, a counseling session, uh, begin a time of caring for souls when they're in the midst of, of a crisis. I've noticed a couple things, a pattern. And, and one of those things is that there is a reluctance from the person to share about this terrible thing that has gone on. Perhaps it's embarrassment. Uh, perhaps it's, you know, I'm not sure that you're going to be able to handle, Pastor, uh, about what has just uh, happened in our lives. And of course, the reality is I can't handle what has happened in their lives. But there is someone who can handle what has happened in their lives. And that is where our authority and our ability to help comes from. So I've noticed this reluctance. I've noticed this embarrassment. And then I've also noticed, uh, I'm not sure that we're actually going to be able to get help here. And through the power of Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel, I have seen in just recent days and over the years, God deliver people. Amen? Some of you. I have seen him deliver. I used to give a spiel to people as they're about to unfold uh, this terrible thing that's, that's happened that might surprise you. And I've shared this with some of you personally. And I would say something like, you know, unless you're going to tell me that you've murdered someone, I've already heard whatever you're going to tell me. And then about two years ago, we got a prayer card from a man named Nick Harris. And I met with Nick in Colfax. And we're having a burger and a soda. And, and, I'm, and I'm noticing this, this common theme of, I'm not sure I can tell this guy what's gone on in my life. And he tells me about his double murder that he committed in a restaurant in the Bay Area, Bay Area like 30 years ago. And he tells me about his time in San Quentin. And what that did to him. And I shared the gospel with Nick Harris. And Nick Harris was born again. And he came to recognize that the God who sent plagues uh, over Egypt, that same power was available to him to find forgiveness and peace after many years of his soul anguishing, anguishing. 
had the privilege of seeing Nick Harris uh, in the ICU uh, right before he died. And he was ready to go. He was a guy full of peace. He, he was actually like shockingly ready to go and denying things uh, medically that most people uh, don't deny. He was ready to go and meet his Lord. So one of the reasons that we have this demonstration of power in these plagues is to show that God has this awesome and undeniable power that is exercised in judgment, but it is also exercised through the gospel of Jesus Christ and through redemption and through peace and healing as objectives for you and for me. This is, this is good news. This is verses 16 through 19. Let's come back to the text here and look at verses 20 and 21. <clears throat> then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the water and say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials and on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies and even the ground where they are. So here we have plague number four. Uh, we've, plague number three is one of the shortest plagues, one of the least uh, described plagues here in Exodus. And now we have a little bit longer one here with, with the plague of flies. We see here in this paragraph that this plague is coming to judge the Egyptians. To judge them. This plague is, is going to be not just kind of a generic one that's out there that might spill over into the Israelites as well, like previous plagues, this plague is going to be concentrated specifically on the Egyptians. It is coming to them. It is a form of judgment. If they do not repent, if Pharaoh does not repent, this is what is coming. And so a second uh, reason that God has sent the plagues is to judge them. God judges sin. He is a holy God, a perfect God, a righteous God, and he is omniscient. He doesn't look over anything, and he judges those who sin against him with an infinite kind of justice, not just gnats or flies, but with an infinite sort of justice, with eternal punishment. So we shouldn't be surprised at the judgments here upon the Egyptians. Again, last week, Pastor Adam referenced Romans 9 because we have a problem, because we want to say that God's not being fair. And so why, if you're doing this to the Egyptians, are you not doing it to the Israelites? And that's what's going on in Romans 9. If you show this to Jacob, why aren't you showing that to Esau? And here's the response in Romans 9. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Why is God finding fault? For who can resist his will? Who can resist these plagues? Who can resist this judgment? Who can resist his wrath? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So part of God's response to our fair-minded, democratically influenced minds is that he is king. 
that He is sovereign. I have to remind myself frequently that in heaven we will not have democracy. We will not have a separation of powers with a Congress and an executive branch and a judicial branch. We're going to have a king. And he's going to be a good king. And right now that king often exercises judgment. And that judgment is deserved upon everyone. Romans 3, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And so if we have uh, skeptics and critics like Dawkins in our minds who would say, how can God judge this? God is an ethnic cleanser, a bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. We have to turn that kind of thinking on its head. We have to be informed by the Bible. And the Bible tells us that the question that we should be asking is not how can God wipe out the the Jebusites or send plagues upon the Egyptians. The question that we should really be asking is how can He show mercy to the Israelites? How can He show mercy to me? How did He change my life and and choose to show me grace and favor when I was a 16-year-old in high school and trying to find my my way in life and He just got a hold of me and showed me His love and mercy? How did He do that? That's the kind of question that we should be asking. Dawkins is wrong in his question and approach. And so we see Paul here in Romans 3 quoting uh, Psalms and quoting Ecclesiastes. He's kind of put these together here in this Old Testament quotation. I have some of my Greek students here, so I can't help myself but mention the Greek word here that's translated, it, it is written. My students know this word well, gegroptai. I got a smile from one of them. It's in the perfect tense, showing the ongoing power and aliveness of the Word of God. Even the truth about the depths of our sin is an alive truth that has relevance to us, that should lead us to worship. It should lead us for our knees to knock and to be thankful and to worship Him because like the Israelites, if you have repented of your sins and believed in Jesus, you have received not plagues, but mercy. And we deserve plagues. So a second reason that God has sent the plagues is to judge, to judge the Egyptians. And we all, including the Israelites, deserve that judgment. Let's come back to the text here and look at verses 22 through 24. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, I, Yahweh, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people this miraculous sign will occur tomorrow. One of the reasons that God is doing these plagues is to specifically demonstrate 
that he is going to deliver his people, Israel, from this injustice. He is judging Pharaoh and the Egyptians for the slavery that they have put the uh, Israelites under, and he is delivering them by his special favor and grace. What is the reason that God would show favor to them and to us? We see the answer in Deuteronomy 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you, you Israelites, and choose you because you are more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So quite the contrary to the view of skeptics like Dawkins, one of the reasons that God has done these plagues and one of the reasons that he has redeemed Israel is because of his love. It was because the Lord loved Israel. It wasn't because of anything they did. It was because he loved them. And he has saved us because he loves us. So he has done this to deliver the Israelites. God sends plagues upon the Egyptians to show his power, to show his judgment, and to deliver those whom he loves in a special and covenantal way. You see, love is is a nuanced thing in the Bible. We read that God loves the world, and he does. But he also loves his individual people in a special kind of way. We read in John 3.16, God so loved the world, he so loved the cosmos. But then we read in John chapter 10 that he loved his sheep in a different sort of way and he's not going to lose one of them. And so it is this covenantal love that he has for Israel that is seen through these plagues and that is seen through the power of the gospel and that is seen in your life and my life when we're saved. Now to come back to the whole idea of him being uh, an ethnic cleanser and an Israelite supremacist or whatever uh, adjectives uh, Dawkins would want to use there. If we read our Old Testaments carefully, we'll see that God is not uh, concerned only for the Israelites, but he is concerned for other peoples as well. He's concerned for the Ninevites, He's concerned for one named Ruth, who is a Moabitess. And we see this great clarity in the New Testament, in the gospel, that there isn't slave or free, Jew Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, barbarian or Scythian, male or female, that his love is across every tribe and every nation and across the entire globe. The gospel is to go there, and it is a free gospel that is calling everyone to believe. So he has sent these plagues to deliver the Israelites. And along the way, even under the Old Covenant, he delivers quite a few others who are non-Israelites. Let's come back to our text here in verse 25. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God here in the land. That's an important phrase. I underline that in my Bible. 
Go sacrifice your God here in the land, Pharaoh says. But Moses says, verse 26, that would not be right. The sacrifices we offer the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commands us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the desert, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. A couple things that strike me here. Uh, First off, we see Moses' uncompromising faith because Moses isn't going to settle for doing this in the land. He's not going to have this worship service there in the land of Egypt, but God has commanded him to go outside, and so he's going to be a faithful leader. But perhaps what strikes me most is this this last line I read in in verse 28, where Pharaoh says, now pray for me. This is kind of the first glimpse we get of Pharaoh saying, now pray for me. And as we move on through this series and move on through the plagues, we're going to see Pharaoh actually make a profession of faith in Yahweh and repent and say, okay. And we see him surrender. But we're also going to see that it's a false surrender and it's a false profession of faith. And so what I think we have going on here is that Pharaoh has realized the power of Yahweh, the power of the covenant-keeping God of Israel who has shown his love and mercy to Israel and to me and by his grace to you as well. We see him recognizing that, but he is obstinate. He's not going to turn. He's not going to repent. So he throws out this, this, this now pray for me. But Moses is uncompromising. Let's finish up uh, chapter 8 here in verse 29. Moses answered, as soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord. And tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only be sure that Pharaoh does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained. But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. As we finish up these next few moments here, next few minutes, I want us to see in this last section uh, Moses' uncompromising uh, faith. If we look back at Exodus 5.1 and 6.11, afterward Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. Moses recognized and obeyed the word of the Lord in an uncompromising way. Pharaoh's trying to get him to compromise and say, okay, I'm going to let you go, but do this in the land. And Moses says, absolutely not. He's going to obey the Lord in a completely uncompromising sort of way. And so the final, fourth and final reason that we have these plagues given is to display the chasm between the compromising faith of Pharaoh and the uncompromising faith of Moses. And what God is looking for in you and for me, He's looking for us to have this kind of an uncompromising faith to the Word of God. 
So I want to ask you this morning where you're at in yielding yourself to the Lord. And of course, none of us are perfect, so what we're really after here is that every area of our lives, that we have a longing, that we have a yieldedness to be completely obedient and surrendered to the Lord in the way Moses is here. I'll just mention a couple areas that we need to be completely surrendered in. We need to be completely surrendered in the area of just our integrity and our truthfulness. That our yes is yes, that our no is no. That we are above reproach. Whether it's in our casual conversations with people, that we don't find ourselves kind of putting ourselves in a little bit better light than we should. Anybody ever done that? I'm the only one. I, do, I have, do I see a hand? Anybody here ever put themselves in a better light in a conversation? Are you awake? We need to be uncompromising in our obedience to God's word. We need to have honesty in, in those subtle conversations as well as doing our taxes. We need to have integrity in the whole realm of life. Be uncompromising. In Ephesians chapter 5, there's a phrase switching now from this domain of, of integrity to sexual purity. I like how the NIV renders it. It says there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality among you. Not even a hint. In my thought life, in my interaction with my phone, and my computer screen, and my television, with other women. There shouldn't even be a hint of it. There are certain things we have to just run from and flee. And this is one of those. Moses demonstrates uncompromising fidelity to the Word of God here. We're not going to have this worship service in Egypt. We're going to get out of here. And we're going to have it in this other land in the desert. God is looking for you and for me to have that same kind of of longing for an uncompromising sort of faith in whatever areas of life we're, we're tempted in. The good news of the gospel is that the power of the resurrection is in that gospel. And the authority over all demons, all temptations, all things that would seek to separate us from the love of God is available to us. And we can have victory. We have read many weeks over these last weeks, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We read a different passage today, Romans 3, which I alluded to in our scripture reading. But 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Murder. It's common to man. Nick Harris is in good company with David. And the Apostle Paul and others who have committed murder in their hearts. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out, church, so that you can stand up under it, so that I can stand up under it. And our lives are characterized by an uncompromising faith and joy and peace and and happiness and contentment, and all of these fruits of the gospel. And we can leave behind 
attacks from people who are smarter than us, but who are really stupid, like Richard Dawkins. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Demonstrated throughout history. Demonstrated through the covenantal keeping Yahweh, God the Father, the God of ancient Israel, who is our God today. Pray for each of us here because we, like Moses, like every human being, is in a battle. There's a battle going on in the heavenly places. There is a war raging. And we want to declare victory because that victory has been secured for us at the cross. We are thankful that our God has authority over every false God, every temptation, every demon, everything that would come our way, trial and tribulation. So help us increasingly to know that our God is good and that he loves us. Help us to bow before him. Help us to sing boldly now with our voices in response to his grace and mercy that he's shown to Israel and that he's shown to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.